The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Do you know what day it is today? Sunday. That's the clever group. Um, D-Day plus three, maybe, for the uh, veterans. It's Pentecost Sunday. Uh, it's, one of the, uh, it's one of the high watermarks on the church calendar for the year, if you believe in such superstitious things <laughs> like I do. The, uh, but Pentecost Sunday, the, the annual commemoration of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and what's considered often the birthday of the Christian church, uh, the beginning of the movement of the Christian church. And so high water mark for that. We're going to be looking at a text, which is Peter's sermon on Pentecost Sunday, or most of it. That's in Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible and want to follow along there or, or turn there. Um, first Christian sermon. What do you expect the first Christian sermon would be about? Um, I think if you've been around church a long time, you'd probably make a better guess. But a lot of people would think, well, it would be about the things that everybody likes so much about Jesus. You know, um, the moral example that he set, uh, the teaching of peace that he did in his life that... Uh, kind of have this universal appeal. Almost everybody seems to respond well to Jesus and uh, talk about, you know, his ethics or his example as a good human being and things like that. But it's not what the apostles talked about that day, or hardly ever, really. Um, Both in what they wrote and what they said, they seem very preoccupied with the events around the end of his life, his uh, crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. And that's what they talked about uh, most of the time, not an example that you need to follow uh, to be like Christ and have your life enriched by having some connection to Jesus, but things you need to believe in order to be made right with God, which is the mission Jesus came on, to rescue us, to reconnect us to God. And so uh, Peter's sermon here, the first Christian sermons, like most Christian sermons since, uh, talks about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, uh, not just the example that he set to us. And so we're going to look at what he said, uh, try to understand it a little bit, and make sense of the hope we have as Christians. So let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that as we listen to your word this morning, that you would open our hearts to you, uh, that we would both understand what your claim on our lives is, and that we would embrace it, that you would send your Holy Spirit like you did on that first Pentecost Sunday to open our hearts to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, read with me beginning at uh, verse 22 of Acts 2. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life, and 
you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Well, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, crooked generation. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Uh, probably a better translation for us would be this crooked race. Uh, save yourselves from this crooked race. This world that's broken, you, you broken in it, and everything around you broken. Uh, save yourselves from this, he says. And... Uh, Everybody kind of talks in these terms, right? What do you do about the broken world? How do you fix the broken world? Every politician uh, speaks about it. You know, this is what's wrong, and this is what we need to try to do. Every religion speaks to this. Uh, most uh, sentimental songs speak to this. What's wrong with the world? Joni Mitchell, for those, no one is my age. Uh, Joni Mitchell, we've got to get ourselves back to the garden, right? Uh, the, the worry about the human condition. Uh, one of the most persistent visions of how things can be fixed in the world is John Lennon's vision in Imagine. Uh, that song has lasted. Even young people know that song. And uh, his hope is that uh, if you could imagine all the people living for today and living life in peace, that everything would be okay finally. Right, if, we, uh, if everyone would pretty much just behave like him... <laughs> I think is the theme of the song, everything would be fine, right? And so whenever you hear about wars happening, you find people comforting themselves with Lennon's dream. Imagine, they want to sing the song and think about what it would be like if we could do without wars. I heard uh, a couple of years ago, uh, after the jihadist attacks in Brussels, I heard the young people gathering around with candles and singing Imagine, uh, thinking that, the cruelty they've experienced would just be different if everyone could follow John Lennon's dream. Any kind of disaffection with the world seems to drum up somebody uh, that wants to sing about Imagine, and you understand, it's a beautiful sentiment, really, to think that the world could live at peace, that we could be at one, that we wouldn't be at each other's throats all the time. Um, 
but it's not a very good dream, even though it's a good sentiment. I, um, his hope is jaundiced by some poison pills that run through the song. Really, the whole song winds up being kind of a poison pill because it's a false hope. You know, first he says, imagine there's no afterlife, basically, no heaven, uh, no hell, nothing to kill or die for, nothing besides this life itself. Imagine the people living for today. And that kind of sounds nice, but the problem with it is if you, uh, if you have a life where there's nothing worth living or dying for, you have a life where there's uh, not much point. Right? If your future is insignificant, if your origin's insignificant, your life is probably insignificant as well. Right? And so uh, it doesn't give us a greater hope to think that this life is just random and all there is and is going to end soon and not memorably. He also dreams that there won't be religion. Right? Imagine a world where there's no religion, which sounds really good because if you didn't have religion, you wouldn't have religious violence. Right? And... Uh, who wouldn't be thrilled with less religious violence in the world? Um, the problem is we've seen people do this. We've seen people dream a world without religion, and it didn't make them more humane, right? Uh, Chairman Mao imagined a world without religion. Uh, Joseph Stalin imagined a world without religion. Paul Pot imagined this world, and it unleashed their cruelty rather than uh, causing Lenin's dream to come true. Maybe the worst part, though, of Lennon's dream and the thing that's most broken about it, just in case you wanted me to, to trash his song even further, is, uh, <laughs> is the attitude behind it that finds expression in the line where he says, I hope that one day you will join us and the world will be at one. You will join us and the world will live at one. Where's the problem in the world? It's with you, <laughs> not with us, right? If you would join us, then the world could live at one, right? We're fine. We're fine. And all the things he names as problems in the world and things that people extrapolate from it are violent because of this belief that I'm right. I'm good, my sentiments are good, my attitude towards the world is good, my existence is good, and yours isn't. And if you would be like me, then things would be fine. And you're not willing to be like me, and it's making me mad, and pretty soon I'm going to be violent because you won't join with me and the world be as one. Right? I mean, that's, that's really what makes religion violent, isn't it? It's self-righteousness. It says, I... I am righteous. I have the way. You must conform to this too. And if you won't, I'll force you. It's also what makes politics coercive and violent as well. John Lennon and Vladimir Ilyich Lennon had the same dream. And, uh, yeah. So, but every, every jihadist, every religious bigot, most every politician, especially those in that other party, are, uh, you know, are filled with self-righteousness. We are, we are the goodies, they're the baddies. And that's the problem, this contentment with our own righteousness. And this is the reason this dream doesn't work. It's because what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with you in the world is more deeply broken than John Lennon's sentiments can change. Right? We, we can't be fixed 
by good sentiments. Uh, we're broken at a deeper level than that. And that's why Peter comes with this better dream. Uh, if you want to be rescued from this crooked generation, if you want to live in a world that's a fixed world, then it has to be repaired on a very deep level that only Jesus Christ can do. And so his sermon to people who were religious but super self-righteous was, you need more help than you thought you needed, and only Jesus can bring that help. That's what he says to people, and, and they don't like that message. Um, they don't like it a lot because that message says, the problem isn't the Romans, the problem isn't the pagans, the problem isn't the people out there who are against us, the problem is inside of us. And when you're a minority and you've been used to thinking of yourself as a victim, like the uh, Jews had under the Roman oppression, you're thinking, are you kidding me? You're, you're just victim-blaming at this point. I'm, we're the beleaguered, right? Those are the bad people who are making our lives terrible. That's what needs to change and be fixed. And just like Jesus said, no, what's wrong with the world is inside you, and it needs to be fixed. And that's why they killed Jesus, and it's why most people have a lot of resistance to Peter's message that he preaches here. He says at the end of the sermon, save yourselves from this corrupt and crooked race. And really the, the sense of the sentence there is more passive than that. It's really let yourselves be saved from this crooked race. Uh, you can't fix yourself. You don't have the technology or the medicine for that. So Peter's dream is a dream of grace. Not a dream of, dream of us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and fixing the world. It's a dream of grace where we allow ourselves to be rescued by Jesus, where we allow ourselves to be healed by Jesus when we couldn't heal ourselves. This is God's plan all along, he says. In verse 23, um, he says, uh, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And when Pete gets back, you should ask him about the mysteries of divine providence and human agency. And how, if this is God's plan, but yet they killed him and they're culpable for that, he knows the answer to that question, so you should ask him. But the plan of God all along was for us to have a substitute to come in and uh, appease the wrath of God toward us. We sung about it, and it sounded nice when we sang about it, but the idea that we need a substitute to deflect the wrath of God from us is an astounding thing to hear. It's very insulting to hear that, and very hard, it's a very hard pill to swallow, that for us to be right with God required the death of the Holy Son of God in our place. And uh, if you believe that today, it's a miracle. The Holy Spirit has come upon you like he did at Pentecost, because no normal right-thinking human being believes that, that you're broken in such a way that it requires the death of the Holy Son of God to make you right with God. Um, War with God? I'm not at war with God. I like God fine. I don't understand him very well, but I'm not hostile. And Jesus and Peter say, well, yeah, you are, actually. Your life has been a war of rebellion against God that you may not recognize, uh, but God does. A war of independence. So they didn't like this message at all, especially because he, he really drove the point home. This was not a very winsome sermon. You know, he says, so the Messiah you've hoped for all these years? Yeah, well, that was Jesus, and you hated him, and you killed him. And you should have known that he was the Messiah. He quotes 
familiar passages to them. He quotes Psalm 16 here in verse 25 and following about uh, the Messiah not uh, undergoing decay. I don't think I would have read Psalm 16 and figured out, I think the Messiah is going to be resurrected. <laughs> so, but he expected them uh, to know better because of Psalm 16. And then Psalm 110, he says, David... An eternal kingdom exalted to the right hand of God, ruling over the whole world. David didn't do that. His tomb's right here. Uh, but he says, David said, my Lord is going to be exalted and reign until his enemies are put under his feet, until the world is right side up again. He says, did you, that wasn't David, right? You had to expect a Messiah who's going to do more than that. And they did. So you should have known when Jesus came. Um, you saw his works. You saw his miracles. You've seen his resurrection. Right? This is 50 days after the resurrection, and 500 people have seen Jesus alive after his death. And they know where his tomb is. I mean, there are people you can ask. You can go to the tomb. This is a high-credibility moment. He's saying, look, you should know better than to be uh, resistant to the idea that Jesus is the Messiah because you've seen enough to know this. And now, even though you've killed him, God has made him both Lord and Messiah, he says, verse 36 here. He's made him both Lord, which is a crazy thing to say to Jewish people. Like, this human being is Yahweh. This human being is God himself. And he is the Messiah that you hoped for. But you killed him. You crucified him. And he drives that point home over and over again. The Messiah came and you missed him. You know the story of the dog Gellert? Usually when preachers use, you know, tired old preacher tropes, people have heard it before. So you may recognize this. It's just such a great story that preachers have to use, the story of the dog Gellard. Uh, it's a story about a uh, feudal lord in Wales, probably a couple of hundred years ago, uh, who lived in a pretty wild region of the country and had a young toddler son. And the dog Gellert was a huge dog that he had, there as a companion, but also as a protector, because there were wolves in the area of the castle. And the dog Gellert was a faithful dog, strong dog, and he trusted when he would go off to hunt that the dog Gellert would protect his son. And one day when he came back from a hunt, he comes and he sees uh, the house is just in disarray. Everything's knocked over, and the dog comes out to greet him, and he's got blood all over him. And uh, he looks at him and says, what's happened? And he goes in into his son's room, and he doesn't, his son's not in his crib. And in fury, he draws his sword, and he kills the dog, Gellert. He said, what kind of a faithless uh, dog are you to defend your master this way? And kills the dog. And then right after that, he hears the voice of his son, who's behind the crib with his hands playing in the hair of a huge wolf that is dead. And he realizes immediately that the dog Gellert has the wolf's blood on him, has defended his son, and the very one who is his son's rescuer is the one he's killed. Right. See why preachers like that story? <laughs> I mean, this is us. It's horrifying to see the reality of what you've done. Uh, it's humiliating in a crushing way uh, to see that your verdict that you were so sure, so righteously sure of is wrong. And uh, this is what Peter is asking the Jews at Pentecost to swallow, is that the one who's come to rescue you is the one you've killed.
which is horrifying and humiliating both for them. And so it says they were cut to the heart. It doesn't say uh, that they felt a little guilty. It says they felt melted because they hadn't just broken God's rules. They'd broken God's heart. And the great sacrifice God had made to come to their rescue, they had spurned and ignored their only hope in their lives. So, another story preachers like. Do you guys know Eustace Scrub? Everyone that went out for Children's Church knows Eustace Scrub. Uh, so once was a boy named Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it, says uh, C.S. Lewis in the Narnia Chronicles. Eustace was a pill, a uh, problem to everyone else uh, that traveled with him. Uh, just selfish and impossible to get along with. They go onto an island one day, and he starts exploring around, and he sees a dragon come out of his cave and die, presumably of old age, and kind of goes down to investigate, and he doesn't know about dragons because he doesn't read the right books, apparently, but he finds out. He goes into the dragon's cave and finds his hoard of crowns and jewelry and coins, the dragon's lair, his hoard of jewels, and he's fascinated by this and loves it, and he gets a bracelet and uh, slides it on his arm, but it's too big for his arm, so he slides it up to his upper arm, and uh, then as he sits there reveling in the wealth, he eventually goes to sleep and dreams with greedy, dragonish thoughts. And uh, when he wakes up, uh, what's inside of him has become external. He wakes up, his arm hurts terribly because this bracelet is now constricting his arm because he's turned into a dragon. Uh, he's now a scaly, nasty, full-scale dragon. It's changed him. And uh, he's miserable from this and tries to reconnect with his friends, but it's pretty hard when you're a dragon. And his life is more and more miserable until finally one day he meets Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion, who leads him up to the top of a mountain where there's a, a well that's really like a large marble pool, and uh, the water looks like it would be very healing. But Aslan says, before you get in the water, you must undress. And that is, take off your dragon skin. He knows dragons shed like reptiles, so says he, uh, he scratches in deep and peels off uh, his skin and peels it off and throws it on the ground, and it's nasty, dragonish looking. And he's ready to get in the water, and he looks down, and he realizes he's still covered in dragon skin. And so he digs in again more deeply and pulls off this skin and throws it on the ground. It's nastier looking than the first. Now he's ready to get in the water, and he looks down. He's, he's still got dragon skin. He tries it again, but he's still a dragon. And Aslan says, uh, you have to let me do it. And he says, okay, so when... Aslan comes at him, he uh, uses his claw to start to undress him, and this is what it says. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself 
the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, soft and smooth as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much. I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything. But only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Now, it's the gospel story, is that Jesus Christ does for us what we can never do for ourselves, that our problems are far deeper than we imagined that they are, and yet Jesus is able to change people like us. He's able to rescue people like us, to transform people like us, and to bring us home to him. This is our hope. And so, when they asked Peter at the end of his sermon, what do we, what do, we do? They, he said, you need to repent. That is, give up on your dream of, of saving yourself, of ruling your own life well, of fixing what's broken in you in the world, and give yourself over to Jesus' dream for you. Right? Repent. Step off the throne of your life and submit to Jesus Christ, the rightful king of your life. Uh, put all of your hope in him. Be baptized if you haven't been baptized yet. So that's which none of them had, right? The first generation. But this is a better dream than any of the dreams that we have uh, naturally in the world. It's a dream of grace, a dream of resurrection, where we're told that such as we are, we will one day live with bodies and minds that are whole, in an environment that's not a threat to us, in relationship with other people that is thriving and flourishing and free of conflict, and mostly that we'll live at peace with God again the things that our hearts have longed for our whole lives, the things that we know and feel that we're made for are given to us by Jesus Christ and don't come any other way. And uh, this hope is not sentimental. It's a hope that's as sure as Jesus' tomb is empty.